Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself is this little child. The same as greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In the 12th season of this podcast, we're going to get somewhat unordinary and take a turn towards the sacred and the shining ones. In other words, what we're going to do is to take a look at five different gods. Suffice it to say, these are beings with powers a little greater than ours. And if we let them, they're beings that'll take us to new levels of consciousness beyond the profane concerns of everyday life. So let's cross that domestic threshold, shall we? And make our way towards that sanctified dimension. So here we go. Everyone bring out your cups. It's time to pour your libations to those exalted and divine ones, without which the commonplace might rule. This is the wisdom of, and this is episode two, the star of the greatest selling book of all time, Jesus. I really wonder if Christians will be pleased or upset that Jesus is being included on this list. It's it's become so fashionable, so easy to dump on Christianity that they'd be, I, I don't know, cautiously optimistic that he made the list. Then again, I can imagine them being completely ticked off in a, in a evangelical way to see good old JC relegated to only one of five. This does not jive with a monotheistic worldview. Like, how dare you put Jesus H. Christ in with, I don't know, someone like, uh, uh, sorry for pronunciation, but uh, Sarinmar, the Norse pig of eternal bacon, or Cardia, the Roman goddess of door hinges? How dare you? Now, don't get your hopes up, listeners. I don't think we'll be doing an episode on the pig bacon god. But for good or for ill, we have today Jesus. Hey, you know, you might be surprised. The the Norse pig of eternal bacon sounds much more interesting than some of the other things that we've talked about on this podcast. I don't know, maybe we should uh, start to reconsider our next few episodes. Anyway, so let's get to the topic at hand for today. Now, it seems to me that we don't really need to give a summary when it comes to, well, one of the most well-known individuals in the history of the world. But, hey, just in case you haven't heard, here it is. So, Jesus of Nazareth is the core figure of one of the world's largest religions, 
Christianity. He's regarded by most Christians as the Incarnation or the Son of God. He was born sometime before 6 and 4 BC and died sometime between 30 and 33 AD. After his death by crucifixion, many of his followers believed that he rose or was resurrected from the dead, after which they converted others to believe in him, and eventually the community that they formed became the early church. The New Testament Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the principal sources for the life and message of Jesus, considerations of uh, historical reliability notwithstanding. And most importantly, maybe, many Christians believe that through Jesus' crucifixion and, and resurrection, God offers humans salvation and eternal life. Uh, completely self-contained within the reality of this anecdote, I'm about to say, I never listened to the end of our podcast. I mean, after the crescendo, both yours and the musical one, I just turn it off. But last night, I listened to an episode the whole way through. Turns out there's some kid at the end. I was completely shocked. And as if her existence wasn't shocking enough, after I contacted my lawyers and had them subpoena the wisdom of financial records, I found out that she is paid 13 and a half times what I get. When I brought this up to you, you just pointed to the poster of young Obi-Wan Kenobi that you have on the wall and said, think about Jesus. When I started to say, that's not Jesus, uh, you shushed me and told me something about him saying rich people have a hard time getting into heaven like a camel can get through the eye of a needle more easily or some such thing. And you were keeping me poor to help me out. Just, you know, looking out for me. But then I said, well, what about her? Why does she get the cash then? And you pointed at Ewan McGregor again and said, well, she's a kid. She's cool in his eyes. So she might as well be able to splash him cash around. I have a few off-mic questions to ask you, but for now... What do you mean by the whole Jesus and children thing? Hey, you know, maybe she gets paid more than you because, well, she actually does more work than you do. I mean, I know that you spend a tremendous amount of time researching and, and planning for your questions. I mean, that's so obvious from all your references to, to YouTube and Twitter. But remember that she actually sticks around after you leave and is willing to work off hours. Anyway... I know that you had a question in there somewhere, in those uh, two minutes of rambling. What was it? It must have been something about Jesus. Um, oh yeah, right, yeah. Why does Jesus put such an emphasis on children? Why are they so important for him? Okay, well, so in a well-known passage from both Matthew and Mark, Jesus is made to say, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does he mean by this? What does he mean that one must become like a child as a condition for, for entering the kingdom of God? Well, who knows for certain. But maybe he's saying something like this. That redemption or salvation involves a kind of return to the pre-fall condition of Adam in Genesis. Where, where, you know, where Adam was without sin and sexuality. In other words, 
a return to the absolute primordial state of innocence. I mean, it's interesting that elsewhere in the religious literature, Jesus is reported to have given the following answer to the question of when it is his followers will see him again. And this is what he replied. He said, It'll happen when you can learn to take off your clothing without being ashamed, like little children. Now, again, notice that this is the very opposite of what happens in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve put put on clothing because they feel guilty. So, in other words, in children, there's a a complete lack of self-consciousness when it comes to being naked. So, redemption then maybe means or requires something like this. It means when the, the believer reverses their guilt and becomes a child and strips off their clothing. Okay, but I think it's pretty obvious that this isn't the, the literal appeal for nudity or some such thing. But rather, it's, it's clearly something like an, an inner transformation of the person. A complete change from the person that they once were. That's to say, it's to become um, unified again. It's to go back to the very beginning of creation before the division of male and female, where where there was just one unmixed individual, an individual without the, the bifurcation, dissonance, and cynicism that marks time and adulthood. It's to have an open and a pure heart like a child. And it's to be free from the body to not hide or conceal anything, and so to achieve a kind of liberation, and so a true openness to God. So, notice then that if something like this is true, then to enter into the kingdom of God is not something that's marked by the consumption of age. No, it's a moment of of self-understanding, and so transformation that can be achieved at any time. Actually, you know what? Now that I think about it, you know, Dostoevsky also had a lot to say about becoming like children too, in the face of the kingdom of God. I mean, his novels aren't just populated by innocent children, but maybe more importantly, I think, with older characters who are completely childlike in their nature. And of course, Dostoevsky admires such characters and thinks that they're, in one way or another, closer to the divine. Okay, so, well, who's a good example here? Well, maybe the most famous character in this regard is someone called Prince Mishkin, from one of his most famous novels, called The Idiot, the title of which is meant to ironically refer to this prince. Now, simply put, Dostoevsky uses Mishkin as the sort of archetype of simplicity and purity, and so, as a kind of Christ figure. Like a child, Mishkin is totally innocently open towards all the adult characters around him. He just always believes in their potential for goodness, and he's always compassionate, no matter what someone may have done in their life. And besides his own childlike nature, Mishkin himself actually says a lot about children. For example, he says that the soul is healed through contact with children, and that they have a, a healing simplicity. What's more, he, he refers to children as little birds, because, well, the earth holds nothing finer than a bird. 
The point is that children are set up in the novel as having some crucially important inherent virtues. Namely, they're helpful, pure, and ultimately good creatures. So, ultimately, what Dostoevsky seems to be suggesting is that children, by being naturally good, are just closer to, well, I don't know, original perfection. Childhood, therefore, is to be associated with Christ and a, and a religious golden age of sorts. Again, this is why the totally naive but completely pure Mishkin is meant to suggest a Christ figure. Okay, but maybe we can get a bit more specific here. I mean, what is it exactly for Dostoevsky that brings children and people with uh, childlike natures so much closer to the kingdom of God than those who are not like this? Well, actually, I, I think the answer to this is something that runs through all of Dostoevsky's novels. And it's this. There's something holy about dependency. In other words, there's something virtuous about people who open themselves up to the dependency of others. I think, I think this is what it means to remain as children before God. It's to embrace our limitations and our weaknesses, and so, because of this, link ourselves to others. Like children who, who realize their limitations and so expect our help, we too, as adults, need to recognize that without others, we don't amount to much either. We're just not capable of anything completely alone. Like children, we have to recognize our need and not be ashamed of it. And at the end of the day, it's, well, it's humility that's the key to it all. And you know what? That's the deepest spiritual truth, whether you believe in God or not. There was this somewhat famous band from the 90s and 2000s, well, famous to me, which, come to think of it, that's not how fame really works, but never mind. The band was named Sloan. A really great band, if you like, 60s and 70s retro tendencies infused into 90s indie pop rock. They had this song called Coax Me, and there's a line in it that just always lodged itself in my mind. The line was, it's not the band I hate, it's their fans. I'm thinking of that line now as I can see another wisdom of recurring character, dare I say eternally recurring, I can see him lurking in the shadows over there. Uh, yeah, there he is, good old Freddie Nietzsche. It's not the band I hate, it's their fans. Totally reminds my simple mind about Nietzsche and his kind of, I don't know, I don't know if this is the right phrase even, conflicted views of Jesus versus all the stuff around him, the acolytes, the religion, the churches that sprung up around the guy. Hey, I, I remember Sloan. One of the more um, underrated bands of our time, right? But anyway, yeah, you're right. Nietzsche certainly did have a, a very complicated and a nuanced view of both Jesus and the, the Christian religion that grew up after him. Okay, so let's start with his view on Jesus first. The, the individual from Nazareth, I mean, not the later more mythologized figure. Actually, you know what? There's a nice uh, thread running through our discussion here. 
Because it turns out that Nietzsche's version of Jesus is going to be connected to children as well. Okay, so it's interesting. In his own conception of Jesus, Nietzsche was pretty heavily influenced by, well, surprise, surprise, Dostoevsky. Actually, Dostoevsky had a, had a striking effect on him and his work in general. I mean, Nietzsche even said of him, in his not-so-humble way, of course, that Dostoevsky was the only person who might have something to teach him in the domain of psychology. Anyway, when, when it comes to Jesus, Nietzsche's characterization is awfully close to, to Dostoevsky's Prince Mishkin from The Idiot. So, for, for Nietzsche, Jesus himself, the, the man from Nazareth, not the later one propagated by the apostles and Paul, was someone that he really admired. I mean, he calls him the, the noblest of human beings. He thinks he's an, a, an astonishingly sincere and, and loving figure, someone who, who possesses the warmest heart. In, in many ways, and here's Dostoevsky's influence, Nietzsche sees Jesus as a kind of child, as a, as a completely innocent and pure person, and as, as someone who just loves unconditionally. Again, like a, like a child would. And there's something, I don't know, incredible about this, Nietzsche thinks. It speaks of someone who had absolutely no thoughts of revenge and punishment, and no resentment in him. So completely innocent and loving, he just wasn't capable of such things. Actually, it's interesting, for, for Nietzsche... This whole idea of revenge and punishment for your sins is something that was the result of Jesus' disciples and not Jesus himself. What happened, he said, is that, is that they just couldn't forgive his death and get over their own feelings of revenge. So what did they do? Well, they elevated Jesus to the one true God and then condemned his executioners as killers of this God. And you know what? I won't even get into how hard Nietzsche is on Paul for, as he sees it, corrupting the true teachings of Jesus. Anyway, so back to the Nazarene himself. Okay, so I said earlier that Nietzsche really admired Jesus. And while that's true, it's not the whole story. He also sees in his innocence and in his unconditional love a worrying immaturity, a, a delayed puberty, as he puts it. So, ultimately, there's a kind of ambivalence to Jesus, Nietzsche thinks. He's incredibly loving, but he's naive. Like a child, he lacks understanding of the subtleties of life. Actually, you know what? Dostoevsky's Prince Mishkin is pretty relevant here. I mean, as I mentioned, he too is described by Dostoevsky as completely innocent, as pure and loving. But, and this is important, at the end of the day, his story, his relationship with others, is not entirely a successful one. Although he, he loves others, his supernatural compassion for them is a kind of, I don't know, a, a kind of static or, or universal one and so one that doesn't really engage authentically with them. In other words, he has an underdeveloped perception 
and understanding of the particularities and the complexities of others. He has a kind of naive and childish outlook that just fails to connect up with adults in a, in a realistic way. I mean, at one point, he even says that he just can't understand how people can be depressed, which, again, should, should make us wonder how it is someone like this can truly be compassionate. In any case, ultimately, the point is that I think that Mishkin fails as a savior because he's just not developed as a man. Well, so as we've seen, there is some of this sort of thinking in Nietzsche's characterization of Jesus. In fact, you know what? To be honest, it, it gets even worse than this. Okay, so are you ready for this? Okay, so not only does Jesus lack some, some worldly experience, but according to Nietzsche, it might even be that Jesus was just too sensitive and weak to handle life itself. As Nietzsche says, anyone who does not resist evil being done to them, and worse, who even loves the very people who are hurting them, is maybe someone who's just incapable of resisting. Someone who's weak and damaged and incapable of any more struggle. In other words, maybe Jesus' unconditional love doesn't issue from a, from a strong religious or spiritual conviction, but from, well, a psychological and physical necessity. Wow. Okay, well, all this said, I, I want to leave Nietzsche now, and I want to return to the, the theme of children, and maybe try to end on a more positive note. Okay, so why else could it be that children receive such a, a high estimation from Jesus? Well, this is just pure speculation, but maybe it has something to do with this that children awaken in us a sense of responsibility and motivate us to a higher ideal. I mean, whether we notice it or not, children watch, right? And given their helplessness and innocence, do we really have any choice but to set the right example? I mean, to be a corrupting example in this context seems, well, it seems the most wicked thing you could ever do. I think there's just something about setting that path up correctly so those little feet behind us may safely and confidently follow that has a measure of the divine in it. It has a measure of the divine insofar as children awaken in us the aspiration to transcend our own local and base needs for the sake of the higher love. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode. Buddha.